Well, good evening. Merry Christmas. Welcome to Liberty Christian Fellowship. My name is Tim. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and we're really excited about the opportunity to celebrate with you tonight the birth of Christ, the Savior. Uh, I feel like I've been in here a very long time today. Is there still snow outside? Is, that, is it going to make it till tomorrow? Yes. I, I was doing some research kind of earlier in the week because this is the kind of stuff I would look up um, about how many white Christmases there have been in Kansas City's history. And so the National Weather Service has data 122 years worth, back to 19, or 1895. And in that span of time, there have been 25 white Christmases, which the National Weather Service defines as one inch of snow on the ground on Christmas morning. I don't know that this year is going to qualify, uh, but... Only 25, so one in every five years. But if you were to give me uh, the following kind of image, in my mind, I conjure up this like idyllic white Christmas, and it is the sound of Bing Crosby's beautiful voice (laughs) singing White Christmas. You give me that. It could be the middle of July, 95 degrees, 100% humidity, and in my mind, there's like a foot of snow outside, I'm 11 years old on my parents' living room floor, ripping into the packaging on a Nintendo 64. (laughs) Like that for me is just kind of like the image, kind of the nostalgic, sentimental image of Christmas. And all it takes is a little bit of being Crosby crooning for me to go to that place immediately. My suspicion would be that everyone kind of has that thing for themselves that kind of makes it feel like Christmas. Maybe it's a couple days or the day after Thanksgiving and you and your family go and you cut down a Christmas tree and you decorate in your living room and that kind of like launches you into Christmas mode. Most of us have that. It's something that we do or we see or we smell uh, that kind of gives us sentimental Christmas. I would uh, hazard a guess that for a lot of people in here, whether you come to church regularly or you just come a couple of times a year, you know, around the holidays, Christmas and Easter or whatever, that hearing the Christmas story that T.A. read, Luke 2, 1 to 20, is part of that for you. It kind of sends your mind into like this image that you have for what Christmas is. And most of us have an image of like a nativity set or a particular painting or some artist rendering of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, you know, laying inside a feeding trough with a couple of shepherds, exactly three wise men holding gifts out in like four random uh, farm animals laying around, right? That's kind of, that is sentimental Christmas image that most of us can pull up at any time, especially when we hear the words of the Christmas story. But what we want to do uh, tonight, what we want to do with our time together is separate out what's sentimental and what's reality. Because the truth is that the story of Christmas is much more than just religious sentimentality. It's eternal reality. And so what we're going to do, this is what we do here normally uh, on Sunday mornings when we're gathered together. We're just going to read back through Luke 2, 1 to 20. And we're going to break it into three pieces. There's the birth of Jesus, and then there's this like response from heaven, and then there's a response on earth. And we're just going to tease out what's kind of a religious, nostalgic sort of picture that we conjure up, and what's actually the return, eternal reality of what's happening here. And so 
I'm going to jump in, Luke 2, verse 1. It says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Jesus is born, right? And it, it gives us that kind of artist rendering picture in our mind. And one of the things that we've been talking about over the course of the year here at LCF is that the story of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation, is one unified story. It's the story of God's work in redeeming humanity from their sin. And God is the author of that. And there's a kind of a common way that some people talk about kind of the role and the nature of God. It's almost as if he's like a clockmaker or a watchmaker who winds up the clock, sets it on the mantle, and then just lets it do its thing forever until it dies. As if God created everything around us, set it into motion, and then is just letting it play out from a distant sort of perspective, hands off. But the reality is that that's not who God is. God is not distant and isolated. He's actually present and interacting. And we see that right here in the first seven verses of Luke chapter two in the birth of Jesus. One of the things that we typically kind of think about when we think of this story is that Mary and Joseph rolled into Bethlehem with Mary on the verge of giving birth. And like they rolled up to the Holiday Inn Express and tried to find a room in the inn. And some young kid behind the counter said, sorry, no vacancy. So they went across the street to the Hampton and tried to find a room there. But there was also nothing. And this frantic sort of search ensued. And when they could come up with nothing else, they just wandered into a stable somewhere and gave birth to Jesus. The reality is that the guest room that they were looking for was actually not much different than the stable they ended up in. It was more of like an Airbnb situation than a hotel situation. What Mary and Joseph are looking for is a guest room that typically would have been located above where a family kept their animals. And due to the fact that there was a census happening and a lot of people were coming to this one particular area, those guest rooms are gone. Someone offers them some space with their animals underneath a guest room in a stable. And so Mary and Joseph go there and Jesus is born with like, you know, a donkey peering into the feeding trough. And as haphazard as that seems to us when we read it, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are not the victims of random, unfortunate circumstances at all. God's authoring something very intentional here. And just like any author, the details are important and they're not lost on him. He's intentional with them. All authors are that way. Take a common story that we kind of can relate to at the Christmas season, right? The Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens writes about two characters, a man named Bob Cratchit, who is poor, he's overworked, he's trying to provide for his family, but he's trying to do so under the heavy hand of his boss, Ebenezer Scrooge, who's old and miserly and wealthy, and they're set in contrast to one another because what we're supposed to see is that it's actually Bob Cratchit who is very rich. 
It has nothing to do with his bank account and everything to do with the fullness of his life and his relationships and the love within his family. Whereas Ebenezer Scrooge is actually quite poor because he's worked himself into that state. He's run himself into misery trying to amass wealth. Charles Dickens, all throughout that story, is very, very intentional with the details of those two characters because they're supposed to teach us something. God is very, very intentional with the details of all of history. And here, he's making a point about Jesus. Kind of the short 33-year arc of Jesus' life is one of humility. He's born in humble circumstances. He's going to live a life of humility in which he ministers and teaches and does these amazing miracles all from this posture of service and servitude. And he's gonna die in utter humiliation on a cross. But the larger arc, the eternal arc of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is much different than that. It's actually a picture of contrast. That from eternity past, Jesus has existed in heaven with the Father, with God in glory, and he steps into the earth. And at that moment, at Christmas, the glory of God is revealed to humanity. And there's a very short, like a blip on a radar of humility from the sun before he is raised back to glory once again. God is showing us something about the nature of the Savior, that he didn't come in order to domineer or to lord over anyone. He came to serve. Primarily, he came to save by serving at the expense of his life. The circumstances of his birth are certainly humble, but that baby is anything other than helpless. That's another sort of sentimental view we have of this story, that there lies baby Jesus, helpless, powerless, almost hopeless in the circumstances in which he's born. But that's not the case at all, really. In fact, later in the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, Paul, the apostle, writes about the very same Jesus. And this is what he has to say. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That Jesus is who's laying in the manger. That Jesus is not poor and helpless that Jesus laying in the manger is simultaneously born into humble circumstances and yet upholding the very universe that he created. Eternal reality, different than kind of the sentimental picture we have of Jesus on the morning of his birth. God is not distant and isolated. He is present and interacting in all of the global story of redemption. And that is true in the birth of Jesus here in the first seven verses of Luke chapter two, but it's also true for you today. God is still authoring the global story of redemption. And though you certainly aren't the savior of the world, the details of your life are not lost on him. He is present. He's interacting. He's intentional. 
The details of your life matter to him. They serve a purpose. He's authoring. And he doesn't just author in random circumstance or random happenstance. That isn't how God works. It isn't how the author of all history writes his story. I don't know what the current or the past season of life is like for every person in this room. And I certainly don't know what is coming in the next season of life for you. But I do know that God is not random about it. That the details matter to him. They matter immensely to him. He's authoring all of history, and that includes your life. He has a purpose for all of the details. So Jesus is born. God is present and interacting. And in the midst of that, heaven responds. And this is what happens, Luke 2, verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Jesus might be laying humbly in a feeding trough in a stable in Bethlehem, but heaven reacts as if he is the chiefs and they just clinched the AFC West. That happened today. (laughs) Heaven is aware of what's happening. It is excited and it's active in the moment. And that excitement is so great and so overwhelming that it breaks into normal human activity. If you're a parent here, at about 2 a.m. tonight, your kids are going to wake up. They're going to be so excited about what's under the Christmas tree or in the living room or downstairs somewhere that it's going to be hard for them to make it in bed to the pre-agreed-upon time that you've set for opening presents. And even though they know that it's supposed to be 6 a.m. and not a minute later, at about 4.30, when their little bodies cannot contain it any longer, they're going to walk into your room and their excitement is going to spill over into your normal night of sleep. That's kind of what's happened here in Luke chapter 2. You can think of it like a bucket. You can put a certain amount of water in a bucket, but at a point, it can't hold anymore, so it starts to spill over the sides. Heaven's excitement bucket is overflowing in the moment. And an angel appears to some shepherds out in the field. In fact, if you were to go through all of Scripture and look at all the points where an angel interacts with humanity, in the vast, vast majority of those, there's a little phrase that God sent an angel to so-and-so to say or do fill in the blank. You'll notice here in Luke chapter 2 that that phrase is not present. In fact, it's one of the only, part, or the only points in all of Scripture where humanity and an angel interact, and that phrase that God sent them is not there. I don't know for certain that that means that this angel went rogue and just did its own thing, but I also think that Scripture is intentional with what it tells us. And so an angel appears in a field to a group of shepherds in the middle of the night, and that angel has one message. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. The summary that that angel wants to give is that God gave in order to save. That's the eternal reality of the story of Christmas. 
God gave in order to save. A savior was born. And that savior is also a Messiah. That's like a loaded Jewish Old Testament term that is talking about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in this particular human being. But he's not just a savior. He's not just the Messiah, right? The angel hits it on the head at the end, the Lord. He is all of those things. God has come into the world. He has given in order to save. And that is good news. Don't be afraid. I have good news. Literally, the word is gospel. That will be for great joy for all the people. And that's about where our sentimental image here stops. Because in your little nativity set, that angel's usually like standing on top of the manger, also holding the star that the wise men followed, right? And there's one of them. But what happens next is that a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared. That's actually a military phrase, multitude. It means the army of the Lord appeared, praising God and saying, When we think of praising, our kind of religious nostalgic thought is that that means they were singing. Some translations actually translate it shouting. They're not necessarily singing. There's an army of angels that appear in this field over the top of these shepherds, and they're shouting, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth on those whom his favor rests. The excitement bucket is just dumping at this point onto the shepherds. And the fact that God gave in order to save is and was and forever will be to the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest. In fact, it is the ultimate revealing of God's glory, the birth and life and death and resurrection of the Son. And that statement, peace on earth to people he favors, That's not a wish. It's not God wishing you peace or hoping the shepherds find peace. In fact, the angels have ruined any opportunity at peace that these shepherds thought was possible that night. It's a declaration. Peace is here. It has come. It is the baby, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. Peace is here. God gave in order to save, and it is to his glory. And heaven responds to that, and now the earthly characters are going to respond in the last six verses here. When the angel had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. See kind of the movement of the story here. Jesus, the Son, steps out of heaven into earth. These angels break in in praise, break out of heaven over the earth. And now... In response to that message, the shepherds are about to do something that moves the story from earth again back to heaven, right? Because when the glory of God is revealed, glory is to be given. And that's what the shepherds do. In fact, 
There are kind of three different ways that we see glory being given to God in this passage. The Bible's full of ways that human beings, whether by their choice or by God getting the glory from them, can glorify the Lord. But there are three of them here. One of them is a very private affair. It's Mary. It says that she's treasuring and meditating on the things that have taken place. Mary does not have all the answers or all the knowledge about everything that's going to happen in Jesus's life. That song, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? The answer to that particular question is no. Mary did know some stuff, but she didn't know all the details. She didn't know all the miracles that her son would do. She didn't know the teachings that he would give. She didn't know the persecutions that he would face or the suffering that he would endure at his death. But she did know some things because some angels had told her that he was going to save his people from their sins. The angel tells Joseph that. That he is Emmanuel, God with us. Again, that's told to Joseph. That he will rule over the, our, over the house of and on the throne of David forever. That's told to Mary in Luke chapter 1. She knows because the shepherds have arrived that these angels just broke out in praise over the top of them in some field and that those angels were calling her son the Savior. Those are the things that she knows for certain. And those are enough to cause her to stop and ponder, to stop and to meditate. We don't do a lot of reflecting as a society. Things move too fast. We have too much going on. It's hard for us to hit the pause button and just think for a minute. But the eternal realities of the story of Christmas should give us that sort of stop. Maybe you just come to church a couple times a year. Or maybe you only come on Christmas Eve because it's part of the sort of Christmas nostalgia or sentiment that you've operated with for years. The fact that the entire world halts what it's doing on this particular night, people from nations all around the globe to celebrate the birth of a child should cause you to pause and say, what exactly is going on? All these people gather together in churches all over the world and they celebrate the birth of a savior. What do I need saving from? Why would everyone stop and do that? What's the big deal? It should give us some pause. If you're here tonight and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, part of just savoring the glory of the birth of the Savior would be to stop and think on those questions. What is this? Is this just some sort of religious game that people play? Part of the glory giving that takes place in this passage is a public proclamation. The shepherds become the first missionaries after the birth of Christ. They're told out in the field that good news has been given that will be great joy for all people because a Savior has been born. And that's enough to pique their interest to at least go and check what's happened in Bethlehem. And when they get there and they see it, they cannot help but go and share that message with everyone that will listen to them. And it says that people are just amazed. Our kind of sentimental image of this moment is very still, right? The shepherds come wandering over from the field. They bring like two of their sheep, fluffy and smelly. They lay them down right in front of the feeding trough, along with whatever animals happen to be inside there. And the shepherds are just kind of leaning on their shepherd's hooks, staring in at the birth of 
Jesus Christ. That's kind of the image that we have. But the actual thing is much more frenetic. There's a lot going on. The shepherds hear this from the angels and they rush over to Bethlehem and they see that Jesus has been born and they don't stop and stand there. They go and they tell because the message is for all people and they take that seriously right from the start. There's a public proclamation and then there's also personal connection and that connection is continual. Having gone out and begun to share this message of the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, the shepherds come back glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which is just as they had been told. Personal connection. As followers of Christ, we make public proclamations about the good news of the gospel, but we never stray from personal connection and relationship with Christ. I think about it like a cell phone. You wake up in the morning, you unplug your cell phone, you go about your day sending text messages, uh, using the internet, playing your favorite app, making phone calls if phones still do that. And then at the end of the day, you hope to kind of limp back home at the end of your workday or at the end of whatever you've got going on with just enough juice to get it plugged back in so it can recharge overnight and you can go about your business the rest of the day. Unfortunately, a lot of us use our relationship with the Lord or our understanding of God in that sort of way. I show up on Sundays, I plug in, I get charged up, I feel good, and then I unplug, I go about my week, and I just deplete, and I deplete, and I deplete, and I deplete, and I hope to limp my way back in the following Sunday. Or maybe you come on Christmas Eve, it's part of your religious sentimentality, you plug yourself in, and you try to go a year disconnected or unplugged so that the next Christmas Eve you can come back and plug back in and get kind of juiced up one more time. But what ought to be normative in the life of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ is ongoing, continual connection. Thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, we don't ever have to leave the comforting, fulfilling presence of God. That's eternal reality. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's not just a 33-year stint of walking around on the earth. That is a continual reality for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He is ever, always present with you. Eternal reality. The story of Christmas is more than just religious sentimentality. The story of Christmas is an eternal reality. God is not distant and isolated. He's present and interacting. He gave his son in order to save, and the glory is due to him ever and always because of that. And when it is revealed to us, we send it back to him. Those are the eternal realities of Christmas. I want to take just two minutes here before we uh, start to close our service tonight and just be really, really clear about something. If you're present with us tonight and you know in your heart that you do not have a relationship with the Lord, I want to talk to you for a second. We know both from scripture, but even just from life experience, that humanity is broken. It's flawed. 
You watch the news for five minutes, you can know that with certainty. And we understand that that's not the way it was, that it's supposed to be. We see the terrible things happen in the world around us or in relationships with the people around us, and we know that it's broken. We know that there's something wrong. And what's wrong is that sin has entered into the world and that there's a God who's holy and righteous and just and loving and good. And humanity, made in his image, is not that way. We have some capacity to look like that, but on the whole, we're sinful. And sin is an uncomfortable word that's not really like kosher to talk about, but I'm not just talking about behaviors. Sin certainly expresses itself in behavior, but I'm talking about a condition, something that marks humanity at our very core, that flaws our very being. And the good news of Christmas that is great joy for all people is that God did not leave us to just flounder around in our own brokenness, but he gave his son. He will save their people from their sin. See, when we come and we celebrate Christmas, Jesus born humbly into a a manger, we're celebrating through that moment to Jesus on the cross. After having lived a perfect life, free of sin, dying a death to pay the price of sin for all of humanity, for all of time. That is good news. Rising on the third day, defeating the power of sin and death. That is good news. Ascending into heaven and seating himself at the right hand of the Father. That is good news that anyone who places their faith in him might be forgiven eternally and look forward with hope toward an eternity in his presence. That is good news. The nostalgic kind of sentimental feelings we get at Christmas center around joy and hope, but those don't have to be seasonal things. By faith in Jesus Christ, you can live out the eternal realities of Christmas every single day. But you've got to place your faith in the only one who has ever been born to save you from your sin, and that's Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's why we'll be back here next Sunday still celebrating because it's not a seasonal event. It's an eternal reality. We're going to sing a couple more songs as we close here. In fact, the first one is one that you probably aren't familiar with, so you can stay seated. The words will be up on the screen. Uh, We encourage you to just take some time and reflect. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then just rejoice in the birth of the Savior. If you're someone who's not ever done that, I encourage you to think about the story of Christmas and what it really means and how that comes into Uh, intersection or impact in your life. We'll sing a few songs and then we'll close.